Father, thank you that you've given us the opportunity to come here tonight to look at your word, to get to know you better, <clears throat> to know what you've done for us, what you're doing for us now, what you will do for us later on, Father. We just thank you for the opportunity to do this, and we just ask that you be with Sue tonight as she instructs it, put the, your words in her mouth, mm-hmm. to come out of the word that you printed with us. We thank you so much for giving us this and providing the way to come back to you, Father, after that broken relationship through the show. These things we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Floyd. Okay, well, tonight, week three out of six, the first week we started in the beginning, at the very beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, and we looked at the significance of God as creator of heaven and earth through the creation stories, and then what happened in chapter 3 when Adam and Eve turned from God and were sent out of the garden. And then last week we picked up towards the end of uh, Genesis through the Pentateuch and got into the prophets to see what do we learn about God as creator of heaven and earth in the prophets. And now tonight we're going to move into the writings. So what we had noted previously, the Pentateuch unfolds the story of God's interaction with humanity, beginning with the beginning, and including his establishment of and a special relationship with the nation of Israel. In Genesis 12, God expressed his desire to raise up a nation through Abram, and after Abram demonstrates his allegiance to God as the creator of heaven and earth in Genesis 14, the covenant between God and Abram is established in chapter 15. Israel also is to demonstrate allegiance to the Lord by worshiping him alone and rejecting idolatry, expressed in part through their lifestyle. In that way, Israel distinguishes herself from the Gentile nations, So last week what we did was we looked a little bit at Deuteronomy chapter 4. And as Moses is giving his last words to the people of Israel before they cross into the promised land, he warns them about turning away from God and turning to idolatry and reiterates some promises relative to God's relationship with Israel. And specifically in verses 39 and 40, of Deuteronomy 4, we see the description of the Lord as God in heaven and earth in verse 39 linked with the command to follow his statutes and commands so that the people of Israel and their descendants might prosper. This is a good thing for them to follow the words, the laws that he has established for them. So relative to the description of God as creator of heaven and earth, the Pentateuch provides evidence that the Lord reveals himself through actions as well as words. Words were very pivotal in the whole creation account. God speaks everything into existence. But then also as we see what he does for Israel in pulling them out of Egypt through uh, mighty acts, through miracles and wonders, he, he gets them freed out of slavery and then gives them his word at Sinai. These are two really significant events. And they both incorporate this idea of God as creator of heaven and earth very pivotally in them. So this week, as I said, we turn to the writings and what they teach about the creator of heaven and earth. The writings put a lot of emphasis on Israel's interaction with the Lord. 
the God who hears and speaks and is able to respond to their pleas and who alone is worthy of praise. They also provide practical instructions on living in harmony with the Creator and experiencing His blessings. So tonight we're going to look at just a couple of passages from the Psalms and then a couple of passages from Proverbs, all four of them incorporating this idea of God as Creator of heaven and earth so we can see again what is significant about that particular description of God. So what do the the Psalms tell us about the Creator? That's the first point in your outline. The Psalms record intimate expressions between people and God. And as such, they're kind of difficult to categorize. Is this Psalm a Psalm of praise? Is this Psalm a plea for the Lord to do something? Um, Topics that the Psalms often embrace include praise, thanksgiving, protest, trust, obedience, lament, and often one psalm will incorporate several of those ideas and topics. In addition, the psalms often reflect two-way communication. For example, God's people express praise and lament to him, but God also communicates to his people blessing and hope. So addressing God as creator in the Psalms often accompanies expressions of praise and anticipation of blessing. Both praise and petition are based on the assurance of what God has done in the past and the hope of what he will do. Seeking help from God in order to live and praising him when he provides it are common motifs in the Psalms, and both of them harmonize with the view of God as creator in Genesis 1 and 2, specifically that he is the source and the sustainer of life. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know we've kind of hammered that one over and over, that that is really key to this idea of God as creator, that he both is the source of life and he sustains life. And those are themes that are carried throughout um, the canon as we look at this description. Well, as many of you know, the Hebrew tomb... The Hebrew term, Baruch, we translate how? Blessed. Blessed. We often translate it as blessed. Now, when God is the object of that verb, that term, it is often translated as praise. We praise God. We bless God. We praise him. Michael Brown uh, has a really good article on this term, Baruch. And he states that human beings bless God by speaking well of him, attributing blessing or good qualities to him. And so he is blessed. He is praised. He is praiseworthy. To seek the blessing of God, though, is also a high value. And so the pursuit and the bestowal of blessing is prominent in the Old Testament. We see it show up in in a few different contexts. Throughout the Psalms, There are requests for God to bless his people, and at times specifically to even increase them. And we'll look at that when we look at Psalm 115. Michael Brown notes that the blessing of God has content. In other words, when God blesses, it actualizes and enables. So there's action involved with this idea of blessing when God blesses us. To seek the blessing of God, then, is to anticipate his action to bring about a good result. Let me repeat that. To 
To seek the blessing of God is to anticipate his action to bring about a good result. Furthermore, Brown states, that which is blessed functions and produces at the optimum level, fulfilling its divinely designed purpose. So when God blesses something and, it, and whatever it is, whether it's people, whether it's an element of creation, when God blesses, it, it functions and produces at the optimum level. It, it, produces, it, it functions as it's created to be functioning, so to speak. So when creation functions as intended, it is conducive to giving or sustaining life, and thus it praises God. There is, therefore, this dual sense to the idea of blessing. One, God blesses people or creation, which results in the bestowal of that which gives benefit to them. So again, we talked about how even in Genesis 1 and 2, when God speaks and all things are created, what does he say about his creation? It was good. It was good. And that tells us something about who God is. So when God blesses people or his creation, it is with the intention of benefit. Now, we need to be careful, too, because we probably all are familiar with certain theologies that like to think that that benefit equals a very specific or narrowly defined answer. But in general terms, God wants us to benefit from his blessing. The second aspect, though, of blessing is that people or creation bless God by praising him. So the calls to bless God and to seek his blessing are repeated topics in the Psalms that recognize his creative activity in heaven and on earth. And we're going to look at two Psalms right now that incorporate these ideas. So flip with me, if you will, to Psalm 115. This psalm begins with an interesting statement. (laughs) It says, Psalm 115.1, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Well, it's odd. It would be odd for anybody to think that (laughs) that people would be the recipients of glory. But it makes this point, and in the context of this psalm, it makes more sense as we keep reading. Um, But it starts off with this appeal. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Why? Because of your love and your faithfulness. So again, I think what we see in the Psalms is an intimate relationship between God and humanity. Often when we think of God as creator, I think what comes to our mind immediately is his sovereignty. He is sovereign over everything. He's in charge of everything because he's made everything. And that's true. But I think what we forget is that God cares about what he has created. And this is really a radically different view of deity than in any other literature of the ancient Near East when it comes to their view of deity and humanity and how the two interact. So it's because of God's love and faithfulness that his name is to be glorified. And then it goes on to say, Why did the nations say... Where is is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. 
They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Does that sound familiar at all, those of you who were here last week? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In Deuteronomy and Jeremiah 10, we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that idols, they're made by people that have these features that are similar to human features, but they're lacking several important qualities. And that's the ability to speak, to move, to act, to breathe, all the things that God enables humans to do as he creates them. So idols are lifeless. And so the psalmist says here, those who make them will be like them, and so will those who trust in them. In other words, those who turn away from the living God and worship idols that are lifeless will become like those lifeless idols. And so again, we talked in the last several weeks the difference between God being the living God, the creator who is the source and sustainer of life, and idols or really anything else that we look to for life that really doesn't yield life. Then we have this contrast. And I think, by the way, that that's probably why the psalmist starts out, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Because the idol makers are mimicking the actions of God in creating idols, and yet it's not yielding life. And so, in a sense, it's it's a mockery of, of God to do this. So the psalmist is clarifying, not to us, Lord, but to you be the glory. So then we have this contrast in verses 9 and following. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Now when you look in the next few verses, we'll see a parallel. These same groups of people. All you Israelites, house of Aaron, and those who fear him, we'll hear those three groups being repeated. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. So the people that God blesses are called to then trust him. Again, the idea of blessing is that God wants to bring benefit to our life, and so we are to trust him. Then verse 14 goes on. May the Lord cause you to flourish both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So again, we see this dual function of praise and bless. That God blesses us and we are to bless him in our praise. We're to trust him. And it, again, shows us some of that dynamic there of this intimacy and vitality that we have in a relationship with God in contrast to the idols that are lifeless. Well, let's look at Psalm 121 as well. We 
Would someone read this psalm aloud for us? It's not very long, just four verses or eight verses. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. You will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall persevere. I will preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forever. Wow. Great. Thanks, Richard. Katrina. Now, this is one of the, the psalms that is called a song of ascent. Does anyone know what a, the song of ascents are? No. Yes. I wanted to start off this this year. Going out to Jerusalem. Yeah, I'll go out to Jerusalem. I sing and then I pass off. Yeah, so as, as the people were on their way up to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, to participate in festivals, these are particular psalms, apparently, that they recited or sang as they went up. So you can imagine here, as they're making their way up to Jerusalem, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And we're not really sure exactly what is being referred to here, because the mountains could be places where robbers would be hiding that could ambush people who are traveling along the road. High places were places that people would worship other deities. So whether it's natural disaster, supernatural threat, whatever it is there, or, and, and then some people would say, well, maybe it's, I lift up my eyes to the mountains referring to the fact that we're going up to Jerusalem and there's an anticipation of worship there, which would be a more positive way to do it seems like it's a little bit more of a concern to me, though, in the context of this psalm. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. So this verse 3 indicates a way that the Lord is providing guidance and protection. Whether it's understood literally, you know, trudging up, the mountain to go to Jerusalem, or figuratively. Uh, yes. Uh, so, I read, and my my version says, raising my eyes to the hills. Yes. That makes more sense than the mountains. Yeah, the same yeah. idea of the high. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. If you are in Jerusalem, and you see little hills around. You watch and get. I I recite the song and open my window in Jerusalem. The first time I was over there and see the whole thing from my balcony. <laughs> Yeah, it's a beautiful psalm. Yeah, and compared to what we have here in the Rocky Mountains, you're right. It's all hills over there. <laughs> but if you're from there, then perhaps it does have more of the idea of a, of a mountain in front of you. Does it, do they also, I mean, in this time too, I would think, I remember, who was it that was saying that they were sitting on a rock and a leopard appeared in front of them and, you know, I mean, at that time, probably they had a lot more animals and stuff to deal with, too. I would think, you know, going in between walking, and they walked everywhere. So, you know, if you were making your way to Jerusalem, you might see a leopard or two <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you would see. But, you know, yeah, well, you know, it's very, it's very barren. There's not a lot of places to hide there. It's not like 
uh, for it. The wilderness in Israel is really more like a desert and hills and rocks and that kind of thing. So, And then, yeah, a lot of wild animals, I'm sure. So there are a lot of threats. And this psalm actually also mentions in verse... Um, Five and six. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. Again, there's discussion among scholars: is this the literal sun beating down on you? Which, again, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know, you you really need to drink more water there than we do here in Colorado. I was surprised uh, to stay hydrated because it is so dry, and the the, the sun can be so. Strong. The mention of the moon encourages some scholars to to suppose that perhaps it's again references to to deities of non-Israelite religions that may be a spiritual threat. But again, either way, especially the last couple of verses makes it clear that no matter what the threat, verse seven says, "The Lord will keep you from all harm." He will watch over your life. Exactly. Your life. Again, God is concerned with producing life, sustaining life, protecting us. And this idea the Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Yeah. And so that this imagery of coming and going, of walking, is imagery used often to indicate going through life's journey, so to speak. So coming and going, um, now and forevermore, the Lord will watch over us as we look to him for help. So again, I think these two psalms, and there are other psalms, many other psalms that talk about God as creator of heaven and earth. These two give us a glimpse, I think, of some important elements of, again, this intimacy that God, our creator, desires to have with humanity. And it's out of that framework, then, that I want us to move into the wisdom literature in Proverbs. Because now that we have, again, this clear sense of who God is and what his desires are for us, what Proverbs talks about is the practical benefit of obedience to the Lord. And the way that Proverbs talks about this is choosing to walk in the way of wisdom versus walking in the way of folly. So the book of Proverbs participates in a long history of wisdom literature, characteristic of the ancient Near East. Although precise categorization of wisdom literature varies, the objective of works like Proverbs is to do what? Those of you who have maybe studied this. What's the objective of Proverbs? Wisdom. Yeah, and what is wi- wisdom in what? Proverbs in particular is concerned with wisdom in life. life. Yeah, living life. One scholar notes that an assumption of wisdom in Proverbs is that it had to do with practical rather than theoretical knowledge, basically knowing how to do something, and in this case, live. Chapters 1 through 9 in particular are presented as the instructions of parents to their child, and in this context, to a son, which is appropriate for this this time and this culture. But that's not to say that these same instructions don't also apply to daughters 
And a lot of emphasis is given on the father-son relationship, but the mother is also mentioned in Proverbs as also teaching their child. So it's a little bit uh, more balanced there than than sometimes I think we, we realize. But a primary objective of these teachings is to motivate the son to choose a life characterized by wisdom rather than folly. Wisdom involves moral instruction expressed in ethical conduct in every area of one's life. So it's not just knowing the right thing to do, but actually living congruently with that understanding of how to live. Now what about Lady Wisdom and the Creator? That's one of the points in your outline. The description of God as creator of heaven and earth appears in Proverbs 3.19 and Proverbs 8.27-29. In both cases, wisdom is closely associated with God's activities. The precise identity and role of wisdom is actually debated, uh, particularly because wisdom is personified as a woman, and she is described as being present at creation. So we'll, we'll look a little bit more closely at these passages and talk about that. But what one scholar observes is that the personification of abstract qualities, like wisdom, is fairly common in poetical books and in the Old Testament. What makes the personification of wisdom in Proverbs unique, though, is that the personification interludes take up this incidental metaphor of wisdom as, as a woman and elaborates on it to a full-blown self-standing image, the way he puts it here, of, woman, of, of wisdom as a woman who acts and reacts on her own. Another scholar identifies possible models on which Lady Wisdom could have been based from real people like teachers or prophets in Israel to mythological female figures like goddesses from other cultures. But the conclusion that he comes to is that Lady Wisdom really is new and independent. There's a lot of ways in which Lady Wisdom, as portrayed in Proverbs, is different than even those models of either real women or, you know, mythological women. So what do we have here when it comes to Proverbs? Well, that's what I want us to look more closely at. Proverbs 3. Let's flip over there. I'm going to start with verse 1. Would someone read the first four verses for us aloud? Sure. Thank you. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my mitzvot. For length of days and years of life and shalom they will add to you. Let kindness and truth never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will gain favor and a good name in the eyes of God and man. Okay, so what do we hear being communicated through these first few verses? What are some observations? Keep his teaching, and so you will be regarded well by God and through the eyes of your fellow man. Okay, good, yeah. So it's the words of the parent, right? To my son, my child. Don't forget my teaching, but keep my commands on your heart, for they will prolong your 
life many years. So now we've got the instruction of the parent to the son. These instructions for you, these commands are you are to promote long life, that it would bring you shalom, peace, and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. What Now, where did we just hear that? <laughs> Those two words apply? Reflects who the Lord is, right? So again, it's this idea of if we're living, if we're going to live in harmony with the one who created us, we need to understand who is the one who created us. Who is he? What is his character? And so that these moral, ethical uh, values that are being communicated in Proverbs are not just random standards because this is a great way to function as a society. Well, it is a great way to function as a society, but it's because it's an overflow of who God is. His character is being reflected. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. And then what we have in verses 5 and 6. Did you notice something there? What do you see? Do you want to read those two verses for us? <clears throat> Trust in Adonai with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Then he will level your paths. Beautiful, isn't it? What stands out to you about those two verses in particular? Well, I think the warning. The warning, don't think that you know it. Seek his knowledge. Yes, yes. Seek the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And again, you know, in our culture, we tend to think of the heart as just the seat of our emotions. But biblically speaking, in both Hebrew and Greek, the, the heart really refers to the innermost part of who we are. It includes our emotions, but also our intellect, our will, our volition, all those things. Trust in the Lord. So we, we see a little bit of a shift here from the first four verses where the parent is saying, listen to my teaching. Now, this is part of his teaching, but what is the teaching now focusing on? Listen to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. If we go on from verses 7 through about 12, it says, do not be wise in your own eyes, building on, oh, wait, you just read those. Uh, Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. So here the son is encouraged to trust the Lord and to submit to the Lord much as he would love and submit to his father. Yeah. So again, emphasizing, am I, am I kind of beating a dead horse here? Emphasizing the intimate relationship that the Lord desires to have with us. So like we were talking about last week, when we think about Deuteronomy in particular, where Moses is saying, follow, obey God's commands, obey the law and all that it, you know, was written as you go into the land. These are not just a bunch of to-dos that are a burden for us. These are God's words to us that are to bring benefit to our lives. That is to help us understand who God is and live in harmony with who he is and how he is. But then we move in verse 13, 
Some would end it to in 20, but others would say to verse 26, and I think it's fair to take it all the way to verse 26. This is where some would categorize this portion as a poem about wisdom. Would someone read verses 13 to 26 for us? Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding. <clears throat> For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways her ways, her ways are ways of pleasure, pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retaineth her. The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. By the knowledge of the depths are broken. By his knowledge are the let me get this right. <laughs> By his knowledge the depths are broken up, and the clouds drop down the dew. My son, let not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So shall they be life unto thy soul, and grace to thy neck. Then shalt thou walk in thy way safely and thy foot shall not stumble. When thou liest down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, thou shalt lie down, and thy sleep shall be sweet. Be not afraid of, su of sudden fear, neither of the desolation of the wicked, when it cometh. For the Lord shall be thy confidence, and shall keep thy foot from being taken. Thank you. Now, what stands out to you? Just Again, just some observations as you look over that portion of the chapter. What stands out to you? That God is, um, you know, that, that being wise and having faith and trust will keep you from, from stumbling, mm -hmm. will bring you sweet sleep, mm -hmm. will... Um, protect you from wickedness when you encounter it. And um, well, those, those are the main things that I pick. Uh, and Good. Well, but they will Good. also give you life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Again, we're seeing that idea of this will be beneficial for you for life. You'll be able to sleep well. You'll be able to, uh, you'll have um, an ornament to grace your neck. Uh, you'll go on your way in safety. Your foot will not stumble. So some of these are, are ideas and images that we just read about in the Psalms. But right in the middle of this whole passage, in verse 19, we've got this statement about, By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations, and by understanding he set the heavens in place. And so we are also hearing after that, Images, ideas that relate back to Genesis 1 and 2 again, right? But it's telling us that it is by wisdom and by understanding that the Lord created all things. So 
One of the one of the things that this reference to cosmogony gives is the reason why wisdom can offer such benefits to those who find her. Since the world was created by wisdom, anyone who lives in accord with it lives in accord with the structure and purpose of the universe, as one scholar puts it. And I would even go so far as to say it's, it's because it's living in harmony with how God has established the universe. It's not just living in harmony with the universe for the universe's sake, but it's because God has created the universe by wisdom that as we embrace wisdom, we're living in harmony, not just with the universe in the way it is, but with the God who created the universe. The universe is the product of the character of God expressed in his creative formation of it. The way of wisdom is living in harmony with God, which includes embracing his ethical values and the conduct appropriate to them. Harmonious relationship with God, who is the source and sustainer of life, leads to a personal well-being in the universe that he created. The pursuit of wisdom, though, is not merely an intellectual acquisition of knowledge. Embracing wisdom involves the whole person, values, decisions, actions, volitions, similar to the dynamics necessary for development of a relationship between two people. And the epitome of that kind of relationship between two people is what kind of relationship? A marriage relationship. So now, again, remember, Proverbs 1 through 9 in particular is directed, is set up, is framed as instructions from parents to their child who is a son and they're encouraging him to choose the way of wisdom versus the way of folly. So personifying wisdom as a woman that would be an attractive marriageable partner in life is one way of motivating the child to choose the way of wisdom because it's not, like I said, just an intellectual exercise. But it's actually personifying wisdom in a way that relates to a relationship between people and ultimately a relationship with the God of all wisdom. As some have noted, the imagery of wisdom in the form of a marriageable girl makes pursuit of her more attractive to the son who is receiving the instruction. And the consequence of accepting or rejecting Lady Wisdom is no less than life or death, which we'll see when we get to Proverbs 8, both of which ultimately are in whose hands? God's. The verses that precede this, this poem that we were talking about in verses 13 to 26, verses 5 to 12, we said how that really depicts the relationship with the Lord as a relationship with the Father, the son to the father. The verses that follow this, 27 to, to the end of this chapter, also talk about a relationship with the Lord. Verse 27 starts off, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, Come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse anyone for no reason when they have done you no harm. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. Now this sounds like a to-do list, doesn't it? Actually, a to-don't list. <laughs> don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But why? we find out in the next few verses. For the Lord detests the 
perverse, but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. So really this list of to don'ts, the, the mirror image of that is to do, because the to do part reflects who God is. And those are the people that God embraces. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. The wise inherit honor, but fools get only shame. So let's flip over to Proverbs 8 and find out a little more about Lady Wisdom. Proverbs 8 is is a bit longer, but it mentions God as creator of heaven and earth. Uh, Like I said in verses 27 to 29, but much of this chapter is about wisdom. Uh, If we skip down to verses 22 to 24, would someone like to read those three verses for us aloud? Proverbs 8, 22 to 24. We find out a little bit about wisdom. Adonai brought me forth the first of his way before his works of old. From eternity I was appointed from the beginning before the world began. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Good. Yeah. So here we have wisdom being described as having been brought forth or given birth by whom? By the Lord. Before what? Everything. Everything that we see. Right? That what we heard again um, described in Genesis 1 and 2. When the world came to be, when there were no watery depths, when there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, before the world or its fields, or any of the dust of the earth, wisdom was there. And again, the question is, well, why is wisdom described as having been born or brought forth by the Lord? Is is wisdom an entity? Well, again, keep in mind what is the... Context. What is the literary context? This is Proverbs, right? <laughs> and what we've already said a couple of times, especially verses, uh, chapters 1 through 9 are addressed instructions for living to a son by his parents. So to describe wisdom in terms of similar to a, a person being brought forth or created, again, just supports this imagery of wisdom as something that is approachable as something relatable as as a person as a woman who would be a good marriage partner now is it literally that way no it's the imagery that the parents are trying to use to help motivate their their child their son to embrace the way of wisdom on more than just an intellectual level Yes. Yes, thank you. And that's something else that we we find as we continue reading this 
uh, from this point on to the end of the chapter, it describes wisdom, if we jump up to verses 30 and 31, wisdom is speaking, and she says, I was constantly at his side. At whose side? The Lord's, throughout the, the process of creation. I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Now, it is really significant to note all through this description, it is still the Lord who is creating. Wisdom is not creating. Wisdom is present next to, so to speak, but this is consistent with what we have in Genesis 1 and 2. There is no other being that either collaborates with the Lord in creating all, all things or is in conflict with the Lord, as in much of the A&E literature, the ancient Near East literature, that has um, creation myths or stories. It's different deities are in conflict, creating, and that's how everything is created. There is none of that here, and, and there is none of it here in this passage either. But wisdom is described in these verses almost like a child who is delighting in being with the Lord, and the Lord is delighting in wisdom. Then we turn a corner when mankind is, is mentioned. Now we have wisdom addressing mankind. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. So now wisdom, this imagery of wisdom has changed from a child to a guardian of humanity, basically. Now, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instructions and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. death. So again, it's that idea of this is not just cerebral. This is not just. And this is about the God who is our creator, who loves us, who created all things in wisdom for our benefit, now calling us, wooing us to pursue his ways and setting it up at, in relational terms. Because when we have a relationship with wisdom, it's really a relationship with the God of wisdom. Yeah. God is the embodiment of wisdom. <laughs> yes, God is the embodiment of wisdom. Yeah. And you and you just I get the whole feeling from this too that it's accumulated, you know? So in other words, I mean I guess another word for accumulating it would be learning it. Because he's always saying, you know, keep my ways, you know, walk, walk in my ways. How do you how do you do that? You have to to learn to do that. And it is something that we need to be in process with. One of the scholars I was reading was about Proverbs was saying how, you know, much of Proverbs is credited to who is being the author. Solomon, Solomon yeah. Not all of it necessarily, and, and the Proverbs indicate which ones are attributed to somebody else. Solomon, right? Well, Solomon was blessed of God with incredible wisdom, right? What happened towards the end of his life? Was he such a wise guy? Yeah. 
Yeah, here, here we have the wisest man who ever lived, yet wasn't consistently doing it because wisdom is something that's just not once you have it, you've got it forever. It is a process of living out life. And again, it speaks of a dynamic relationship with the Creator, which I, for one, love. If it were just, here, give me a pill and I will perform the way my God wants me to perform, where is the relationship in that? Where is their growth? Where is their vitality? God is not a vending machine, and neither are we. So it is a process of walking in the way of wisdom versus walking in the way of folly. And here is a child who is on the brink of leaving the home, of being influenced by lots of different voices out there. And the parents are impressing upon this child, choose the way of wisdom. You'll hear a lot of other voices, but choose the way of wisdom. Now, do we always do it perfectly? No. But thankfully, at this point in salvation history, and we've talked about how from Genesis to Revelation, God has a grand narrative that's unfolding. At this point in salvation history, we have the incredible privilege of understanding that God has sent Messiah to redeem us, that we not... In the Old Testament, God gives his spirit to people for certain occasions. Now that Messiah has come, when we believe in him, we've got the Holy Spirit indwelling us all the time. So how much more readily, then, can we discern the way of wisdom versus the way of folly? Because we've got the spirit of God in us. My question is, are we listening? And are we making choices? follow him because even though we have the spirit of God in us you and I both know we still have the freedom to choose because we are still created in the image of God he has not made us as robots but that means we can grieve the Holy Spirit when we turn away from God we also can he can rejoice with us when we do enter into all that he has for us but we still face the same decision Way of wisdom, way of folly. So how do we know that we're choosing way of wisdom? I mean, that may sound like a stupid question. But, you know, I'm just like... I think it's a great question. What do you all think? The outcome. The outcome, meaning... You don't always know until you're done. <coughs> okay. And you see the results. Okay. That sense of holy fear... Meaning, what is holy fear? Just what? that, that uh, wanting to be obedient to the Creator. Okay. Okay. You read about it in Proverbs 3, all, with the, the, the pleasantness, the peace, the sleep, <laughs> some of those things. Yes. And thanks be to God, I think sometimes He allows His Holy Spirit to unsettle us if we're going the wrong way. And He can correct us. And then... Give us some confirmation. What else? Well, I feel like I have a really, I feel like I hear from God and then I don't trust that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't know how to get over that. That's the, you know, that's kind of like, because you, you feel like, I mean, God doesn't come over to you and, you know, have this long conversation, but yet you somehow know. And that, I don't know, I'm just... Okay, and what do we look to to find out whether we know? What is it we often look to? 
for confirmation that this is God's will. God's instructions is the writing, commandments. Okay, that's one option. And I think that's a good one. And my, my son, he asked me, he said, about making choices and decisions. He said, I made a lot of bad decisions, Dad. If I'd just listened to you, I wouldn't have went through this. And I, and I instructed him to read Proverbs over and over and over again. He did it in his heart. Yep. Yep. God has given us his word. This is an incredible gift. Incredible. And I think in our congregation we celebrate that. I wonder if we carry it with us throughout the week, not just on Shabbat morning. But yeah, God has given us his word and not just Proverbs. He's given us all of his word. And we've talked about how the event at Sinai, Moses, God giving him the, the ten... Ten words, Ten Commandments, huge, huge in the history of Israel, huge, huge in human history. But now we, ha- we have his word for us right here. So yes, this is going to be an incredibly important way for us to discern. But let me take it another step. When you're in a relationship with someone, I use this, well, I'll, just, I'll just tell you what, what I think of when I think about this whole, whole scenario, because I too struggle with, when am I hearing from God? What is it? What? Is this just kind of a good idea that I came up with? Or is this God actually, is this really a good idea from, from the Lord? What I think about is my mom. You know, my mom has passed away, but whenever, whenever I go shopping, even today, and this may be kind of a women thing, so sorry, guys. But when I go shopping for clothes, I will consistently see things, and I'll think, oh, that would look great on Mom. Why? Because I know my mom. I know what she likes. I know what she doesn't like. I know the kind of food she likes to eat. I know the kind of jewelry she likes to wear. I know the kind of shoes she likes to wear. How do I know these things? Because I've been in a relationship with my mom for a lot of years. And I love my mom. My mom loved me. And that's how I can discern, even when situations where I don't have anything specifically written in God's Word, the more I understand who the God of the Word is, I get a good, pretty good idea of, would God like this or not like this in this particular situation? Would this be something that the Lord would encourage me to do or not encourage me to do? Because I'm getting to know who God is. Again, it's a relationship. Intimacy. Intimacy, yes. With that intimacy comes the trust. Yes. And then that influences your choices. Yes, it does. And God's word is his most direct way of communicating with us. Is it his only way of communicating with us? No. No? It's his most direct way, and so that's why I think, yeah, this is always going to be a great measure for is this really aligning with what God would want or not? How does it measure against the word? He's also given us his spirit to guide us into all truth. And he's given us the community of believers as well to learn and grow and benefit from one another so that we can grow to maturity. That's what Ephesians 4 talks about. And I think that will help us too because one of the things that is a little bit concerning for me sometimes when I hear people really want to gravitate towards I have this sense of peace about this decision, and that's how I know it's from God. My question is, are you sure that's God's peace, or is that just a sense of relief that you feel 
because the bad situation, you think you've come up with a solution to it. And sadly, I think people leave marriages because they get a sense of relief of being out of a difficult situation, and they call it God's will for their life, but I'm not so sure. Maybe it is. Maybe not always, though. Again, is it a sense of relief, I feel, or is this God's peace? What happens to me usually if I feel it's from God, things just fall into place. Boom, 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 boom. It's not from God, it's like plenty get it done. Yeah. And I think that especially if it is if it's a series of things that are beyond my control Mm -hmm. and God needs to be the one behind it. The balance again is sometimes I think the Lord wants us to persevere when things get difficult. So there needs to be a little bit of discernment on that side, too. But, yeah, I mean, if it's just closed door after closed door and you've been seeking the Lord, and if you're willing to go either way on the decision, but the doors keep closing, then I think, yeah, that probably is the Lord then. But, again, I need to check my heart and say, (laughs) okay, I'm facing these two decisions. I really want to do this one. I really don't want to do this one. I need to get to a place of, okay, Lord, I'm really okay with either one of these decisions. I really want thy will be done. And that can help, too. We've got a couple minutes here. I love the discussion, and actually you've, you've covered what we wanted to get to anyway. Um, let me just say a few words of, of summary. When it comes to Proverbs in particular, um, it is important to realize Proverbs is a different genre of literature than, say, the epistles in the New Testament, which are straight instruction. This is wisdom literature. So, you, you know, you sometimes read a proverb, and then the next proverb seems to contradict what you just read. Or something. Well, it's a different kind of literature, so we need to be aware of that, and it deals a lot with the difficult decisions of paradoxes. So even though the created order is complex and full of paradoxes, wisdom leads to life because it is living according to the ways of the Lord. Embracing wisdom, however, is not a merely intellectual exercise like we've been saying. It engages the whole person, and the benefits of fully embracing her are likewise profitable for the whole of one's life. As a work intended to motivate young people or men in particular toward the right living, the personification of wisdom as a desirous woman with whom to enter a relationship is fitting and appropriate to reach that goal. Ultimately, a call to wisdom is a call to live in right relationship to the Creator. So in summary, in the Psalms, I think we find the Creator both loving and sovereign. He cares about His people and He's able to protect and provide for them. He desires to bless those whom he has made, and it is appropriate for those he has created to praise or bless him. So again, that's a good reminder for me. I'm always looking for God to bless me. <laughs> Lord, please guide me. Please benefit me right now. I really need your benefit. But how often am I praising him? Am I thanking him? Am I giving the glory to his name for what he has already given me and blessed me? And again, he stands in stark contrast to idols that could do nothing. As the one who listens, God speaks and acts. He both creates and sustains life. 
In Proverbs, we see a portrait of what it looks like to walk or live in harmony with the Creator by embracing wisdom. Embracing wisdom is not simply an intellectual enterprise. It involves embracing both ethical values that reflect the character of God and conduct that is consistent with those values. And really, the last section in your notes, what are the implications for me? I think we've already discussed these. Um, So thanks. Um, The couple of questions I had there are, where do you tend to turn to receive blessings? When we want benefit in life, where do we tend to turn? And are we turning to the creator? And then secondly, on what do you tend to base your daily decisions? If you viewed decisions as a choice between the way of wisdom and the way of folly, what would that look like in your life? So, thanks for a great discussion, and I think that wraps it up, so let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you, and we do praise you. We bless you, Lord, that you are alone, the living and true God. Thank you that you have created the heavens and the earth, that you are trustworthy, that you are loving, that you are faithful. Thank you that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are all-powerful. Thank you that you discipline us as your children, just as a loving father disciplines his child. Lord, thank you that you care care enough about us to correct us whenever we stray, whenever we start to head in the way of folly, that you will bring discipline in our lives to help bring us back to the way of wisdom. So I pray, God, that you would help all of us to ponder these things more deeply in our own lives, that we would embrace wisdom because we want to embrace who you are. We thank you and praise you in Yeshua's name. Amen.